Okay, so my title, an early pioneer of the empowerment or exploitation of women in Baptist ministry. So, under John Merton's leadership, there is evidence in the First Baptist Church of inclusive thinking around the ministry of women in church life and mission. So this paper explores the potential impact of this inclusion being dependent on there being a want of men. So I begin by introducing John Merton. There are few known records detailing the life of John Merton prior to his involvement with John Smith and Thomas Helwys in the 1606 covenant making of the Gainsborough Scrooby Congregation in England. In approximately 1607, this Gainsborough Scrooby Congregation remained under the one covenant that became two congregations, Gainsbury and Scrooby. The Gainsbury Congregation was the congregation Smith, Howis and Merton remained a part of. It is that con- congregation facing persecution that fled to Amsterdam and under Smith's leadership became the first Baptist church in Amsterdam in 1609. It subsequently became the first Baptist church on English soil in 1612, when those who remained part of the congregation following a split and Smith's departure, returned to England under the leadership of Helwys. Helwys died in 1616, and by this time Merton had taken over the leadership of the congregation from Helwys, but is contested as to exactly when the handover took place. It is known that Merton was one of the four signatories to the letter, a vindication of the position assumed by the English Baptists of 1610, Thomas Helwys is noted as the lead signatory. It was sent to the Mennonite church leaders when the split occurred in the First Baptist Church in Amsterdam. By 1613, John Merton was being identified as a lead figure of the congregation. He's identified as such in a book held by the British Museum entitled The Sealed Fountain Open to the Faithful and Their Seed by John Wilkinson, a prisoner at Colchester against John Morton, John Merton was also referred to as John Morton, prisoner at London. It sets out the beliefs of John Merton and his followers on infant baptism and contains an account of Wilkinson's opposing views, which he signed John Wilkinson, Wilkinson, a prisoner in Colchester for the patience and faith of the saints in 1613. In John Merton's writing, a description of what God hath predestined in 1620, He revealed inclusive thinking on the role of women in church life as he defended the right of women to preach, teach and be involved in taking baptisms. This was in clear contrast with others of his day, many of whom were influenced by the thinking of key figures of a century earlier that had sought to reform the church in Europe. One of those key figures was Martin Luther and in 1517 Luther, in posting his 95 theses in Wittenberg, marked the beginning of that reformation which would later called the Protestant Reformation. The King of England, King Henry VIII, did not support Luther's protestations or initially seek to part from papal rule of the church in England, but formally changed in 1534 when he initiated the passing of the Act of Supremacy, which established the monarch, not the Pope, as the head of the church in England. This English Protestant Reformation did not move smoothly as King Henry's successors had differing differing views on the extent to which they should move towards Protestantism or back towards papal jurisdiction. By 1605 and a foiled gunpowder plot by remaining English Catholics, it seems English society had arrived at a more settled position of seeing itself essentially as having a state Protestant Church of England. 
Luther and other magisterial Protestant reformers, such as Calvin, in arguing for the reform of belief and practice within the Roman Catholic Church, notably did not appear to extend this to the need to empower women in church. Like key figures before him, Luther traced the source of the prohibition of women's public ministry to Genesis chapter 3, verse 16, and a need for women out of respectful submission to their husbands not to exercise public ministry. When commenting on this text, he stated, if Eve had persisted in the truth, she would not only have been subjected to the rule of her husband, but she herself would also have been a partner in the rule, which is now entirely the concern of males. The woman is like a nail driven into the wall. She sits at home, and for this reason, Paul in Titus chapter 2, verse 5, calls her an oikorgus. Struggle with that word. The wife should stay at home and look after the affairs of the household as one who has been deprived of the ability of, of administering those affairs that are outside and that concern the state. Luther seemed to also draw a connection with a subservient role of women in being the means by which men could marry rather than be aflame with passion, which 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 9 warned against. John Calvin, in his commentary from 1 Corinthians chapter 14, argued that it was incompatible for women to exercise public ministries in the church, such as teaching. The task of teaching is one that belongs to someone with oversight and is for that reason inconsistent with being in subjection. His assessment of women being in subjection was based on his commentary on Genesis 3, verse 16. Your desire shall be unto your husband is of the same force as if he had said that she should not be free and at her own command, but subject to the authority of her husband and dependent upon his will, or as if he had said, you will desire nothing but what your husband wishes. Calvin saw a unity between the Old and New Testaments. The New Testament expands on the Old Testament. This underpinned his analysis that the role of women is to submit to men in the Old Testament, was to continue in the New Testament, and women are to remain silent and not be involved in public ministry in church life and mission. Of course, magisterial reformers were not the only notable reformers of their day. Whilst their movements became state-sponsored, radical reformers such as the Anabaptists and the notable figure of Men and Simons in Holland failed to garner support from ruling authorities. The radical reformers offered more significant challenges to the status quo, such as the need for greater separation between state and church, and determined a slightly more inclusive public role in the life of the church for women. Simon's writing in 1541 and 1556 on the true Christian faith drew from the image of the church as a purified bride awaiting her bridegroom, Christ, from biblical texts such as Songs of Solomon as a key hermeneutical tool. This bridal imagery he found in scripture also determined for him the relationship between men and women, and he saw women, brides, as subordinate to men, bridegrooms, in the natural order, on the grounds that Eve was formed from Adam's body. This seemed to limit but not, not totally preclude the role of women in leadership in church life. As followers of the Men of Simon's tradition, by 1632, included in uh, their daughter confession a reference to an office of deaconess. Article 9, section 5 stated also that honourable widows be ordained and chosen as servants who besides the almoners are to visit, comfort and take care of the poor, the weak, the afflicted and the needy as also to visit, comfort, and take care of widows and orphans, and further to assist in taking care of any matters in the church that properly come 
within their sphere according to their best ability. Texts from 1 Timothy chapter 5, Romans 16, James 1 were used to underpin the place of deaconesses in offices of the church. These were verses drawn from the parts of the Bible that Simon's placed greatest authority on, named the New Testament teachings of Christ and his apostles. It would therefore seem that compared to these influential Reformation figures such as Luther, Calvin and Simons, Merton was articulating an unusually inclusive early thinking on the role of women in church life in this post-Reformation context. Merton is noted as defending the right of women to preach, teach and be involved in taking baptisms to a leader of a congregational model of church, John Robinson. Robinson was suggesting only pastors should be permitted to baptise. Merton argued that when a church is planted, it was right that women should be permitted to preach the gospel where there is a want of men to preach the gospel. Until such time, there are men, including from those she has taught, are able to do so and take over from her. The important point for Merton was to recognise that in accordance with Matthew chapter 18, verse 20, Christ promises his presence where two or three of his disciples are gathered in his name, and that included in the process of new disciples being baptised into the church. In affirming the rights of women in the life, life of the church, the story of Lydia in Acts chapter 16 appeared to be an important point of reference for Merton. Lydia, as a woman, apparently had control of her household at the time of becoming a disciple and chose to invite Paul and his companions to stay with her and helped her household also become disciples. Further analysis of Merton's writings reveals an ongoing commitment of the First Baptist Church to prioritise the texts that convey the actions of Christ and Christ's apostles in the New Testament. In arguing the case for believers' baptism in a description of what God hath predestined, Merton focused on what he saw as definitive that there was no example of infant baptism in what he described as Christ's perfect testament. Further, that the practice of the primitive church of the New Testament, he argued, was baptism after an individual believed, as was the practice of Christ and his apostles, which they were guided by. Consequently, in his mind, there was no grounds for correlating the practice of circumcision of infants in the Old Testament with an argument of practicing infant baptism. Rather, there were grounds to associate it with the lying spirit, Antichrist, which makes a person believe in infant baptism. This emphasis on the gospel accounts in the book of Acts which are books that tell stories, gives Merton's approach to theology a strong narrative feel. Merton's writings also reveal a commitment to seeing particular groups having a privileged insight of reading biblical texts. For Merton, those who fear and obey God are most commonly found amongst the poor and the despised of the world. He felt it was their lived experience from their social location of the underside of society that made them particularly well-placed to hear the voice of Christ in scripture in a way the author intended or envisioned. For for Merton, this was to be expected because Christ and his disciples too had lived on the underside of society. Whilst it is clear that admirably for his day, Merton believed in greater empowerment of women in church life than his counterparts, it has to be noted their empowerment to teach, preach and baptise in his words was to be dependent on there being a want of men. The implication being that women's gifting could be utilised or exploited to exercise ministry when there was no men suitable for the task. 
The question arises as to whether a more progressive empowerment of women has prevailed in British Baptist churches over time, or a legacy of women's gifting being exploited where there is a want of men. The British Baptist movement over time grew and and merged into two major strands, which are today known as the Baptist Union of Great Britain and Grace Baptists. The Baptist Union of Great Britain, or Bugby, was one of the first denominations to call a woman as a minister, Edith Gates, in 1918. Grace Baptists to date have not recognised women as ministers. Edith Gates being recognised as a pastor has to be set in the wider context of the First World War. During the war, women in Britain experienced rights and responsibilities they had had not previously, whilst men were away. It's also worth noting that 1918 was additionally the year women, and only some of them, got the right to vote in England. During this period, other women found themselves, in effect, operating as ministers of local churches in all but name, as they assumed the office of deaconess. The office of deaconess originated in the London Association of Baptist Churches, and was designed to be a more practical, caring role that women were naturally suited to. It was an office that came with a lesser financial reward than that of a minister, and deaconesses, unlike ministers, were also required to resign their position if and when they were married. The response of the Baptist Union of Great Britain in these changing times was to formally adopt the Order of Baptist Deaconesses in 1919 as a union-wide initiative. In 1918, the Bugby General Secretary, John Howard Shakespeare, also spoke out in favour of women as ministers. There was, however, no national coordinated Baptist response to address the issue of women as ministers until a committee of the Bugby Council made a statement in February 1926. The 1926 statement of the committee of Bugby Council argued that it would be contrary to Baptist belief and practice to make sex a bar to any kind of Christian service, as a local church has the right to call its pastor. The issue of whether they should be admitted to the accredited list of Bugby ministers, however, they argued was another matter. That was dependent on whether their ministry was deemed valid to qualify for the benefits such, such as the Sustaination Fund, which had been created with married and unmarried men in mind. The committee concluded that women should be put on a separate accredited list for women pastors and benefits appropriate for women were to be determined by a subcommittee. This subcommittee was duly formed and in July 1926 determined that only unmarried or widowed women could access the superannuation and sustenation funds, even though men could access the fund whatever their marital status. This unequal treatment of women in ministry during this period, in summary, was that they were put on a separate accredited list and called women pastors as opposed to their male counterparts who were called ministers. Further, women in ministry who were married were barred from receiving financial benefits that married men in ministry were deemed entitled to. In addition to this, there were women in the office of deaconess doing the work of ministers in all but name but for lesser financial reward and being required to resign their position if they married. It was not until a special committee of the Bugby Council was set up in 1965 that the issues of women in the office of deaconess doing the work of ministers with lesser reward and greater restrictions, as well as the unequal treatment of married women ministers to that of their male counterparts were addressed. The committee issued its report, Women in Service of the Domination at the Bugby Council, March 1966. 
This report marked the first time Bugby issued a detailed theological statement on its position on the issue of women in ministry. In their finalised published report in September 1967, recommendation 1B read that deaconesses exercising a ministerial function should be invited to submit applications to be ordained and accredited as ministers. There were further recommendations to improve the terms and conditions of those that remain deaconesses in relation to choice of dress, parity in stipend, opportunities for university education and extending a right to be a deaconess and marry. However, the committee did not go as far as to recommend one joint accredited list of ministers for men and women. That did not occur until 1975 through the dissolution of the order of deaconesses at the Budby Council on the grounds that the role of deaconess had become that of minister. At this point, all remaining deaconesses were transferred to the single list of accredited ministers, which, which was for men and women. The words of one of the women pastors not included in the formation of the 1965 committee certainly points to the possibility that some of them may have been discerning a more urgent push for change years before the 1966 report. Reverend Gwyneth Hubble, who oversaw the training of deaconesses, wrote back in 1961, the existence of an order of deaconesses has been for us as a denomination an escape route by which we have avoided the real issues of women in pastoral ministry. And we have been content because of the shortage of male ministers to let women do the work of pastoral minister and call them by another name. To conclude, the journey of women in ministry in Bugby until 1975 at least does appear to suggest that the empowerment of women in church life to some degree remain dependent on a, man, on a want of men. Women like Edith Gates were able to be recognised as pastors when many men were at war, so there was a want of men to be pastors. Women's gifting was also at times exploited in deaconess roles that were all in all but name a minister's role. This empowerment of women approach as dependent on a one of men is of course also evident in the very first Baptist church through the writing of John Merton in the early 17th century. There is, however, the potential for a legacy to emerge from Merton's thinking in relation to recognising the significance of the social location for those reading scripture to play a role in an ongoing movement for empowering women in church life. Its relevance can be seen through considering the women pastors not included in the formation of the 1965 Bugby Special Committee that looked into the issue of women in service of the domination. Women pastors such as Gwyneth Hubble, who it seems may well have been reading scripture from their social, social location in inclusive ways that it took others many more years to see as valid. Could the poor and despised so, social location principle found in Merton's writing be seen as an important part of his legacy? A principle that could be utilised for the continued work towards a greater empowerment of women in Baptist ministry, regardless of whether there is a want of men. Yeah, thank you. That was absolutely fascinating. Um, I certainly have questions, but I'm quite happy to take questions from the floor. Who was, who's that starters? Ashley. Um, uh, thank you for introducing me to Jane Merton and um, fascinating the way you read uh, empowerment and exploitation and uh, how the context determined that. 
do you think there's a danger that in a lot of our churches in the UK today, there is still that exploitation, that for want of men? There are not enough male Baptist ministers, so churches are prepared to consider women now. Um. Um. <coughs> I think those involved in the settlement process probably have the best insight as to the answer to that question. Um, and regional teams, where they're engaging with churches, um, I, I, I mean, I, I can, I, I can, I can talk from my own experience if that's helpful. So, um, I'm based at a church in Cambridge. Um, where the church openly declared at my induction, so I'm not saying anything that's not known, um, that when the vacancy emerged at the church, they prayed to God for a married man with children. Um, and it was through the work of their moderator um, that they began to shift. And uh, to their credit, uh, as they said in the induction, um, they were thankful that they listened to God. But, I mean, ultimately, they're very open. That's where they started. So if they are anything to go by, then that may well be the case because they did actually see um, married men with children and realised that's not who God was calling them to. So there's certainly the mind potential for that mindset out there. Um, there are uh, wider issues connected to that. But, but, yeah, I think there's certainly a potential. Um, I have a question which sort of fits off the back of that. In many churches, attendance <coughs> is more female than male. And yet, in ministry, even now, it is more male than female. I just wonder if you have any... There's a dearth of men in our churches, but we still end up with more men than women in leadership. I just wondered if you had any reflections on that. Um, I, I guess this is getting into to where my research is heading, my wider research in terms of what I'm doing. Um, but certainly, I guess we've got to consider the, the Christian education that um, is taking place within our church context. Um, how are people learning um, what a minister should or shouldn't look like? So I think for me, that's certainly an area uh, that we need to sort of go deeper into. Thank you. Anybody else? Yeah, Thank you so much. The, uh, in your overview of the 20th century, you mentioned the disparity of terms and conditions, the disparity of pay between men and women for doing the same job. I don't know whether as a, a national body we have the figures to back this up, but I assume that there is still a disparity between the remuneration for women and men in Baptist ministry. I know we hide behind the fact that we don't have central payments and therefore we probably don't fall foul of legislation, but my instinct is that it's still the case that on the whole women are paid less. Do you have any knowledge of that or back, back me up or shoot me down on that? I mean, I, I know someone did, um, was it Gemma? I think it was Gemma did a, did a small sort of scale um, bit, of, bit of research to try and get a, a feel for it and her, her findings suggested that there is. Um, but I, I think one of the challenges that we have as a union is there's very little um, research statistics data that we have um, to, to confirm one way or another. But, but certainly that's the, the impression um, that I say individuals like Gemma that have begun to do some work in this area. That's the impression that there, there definitely is. Yeah. 
Anybody else? Yes. I was interested about how John Merton talks about women understanding the marginalisation of Jesus' disciples in scripture and how that might, I guess, preach the gospel in a more relevant way. And I wonder if you had any more to say about how his understanding of marginalisation helped him to get women to preach. Or what was his motivation for picking that up? Well, I mean, I think... What's interesting is that he actually argues for it because I think one of the um, one of the things that you pick up that a sense of pragmatism that's that's uh, shaped by that period and I think um, Ruth Goldblum's um, writing has picked up on some of that. Um, um, but he's when you look at his work, he's actually arguing for it, which says it's more than pragmatism. There is a sense for him he can <laughs> see no theological ecclesiological basis for women not being able to do this. Um, so he's certainly removing those barriers. I think when you delve into the way he's he's reading scripture, um, social location is is key, as you say, the poor and despised. And obviously, at that time, um, you know what he was going through, being imprisoned, etc., um, allows you potentially. I think when you are on the margins in that way, uh, potentially um, to have more empathy or connection um, with those that are also. Um, suffering. I think it's it's harder to ignore painful suffering when you two are going through it. Um, what else would I say about John Merton? Um, he's he's an interesting figure. He's a very interesting figure when you, you see his work. Um, <coughs> I don't know if I've got more I can add at this point. I'm still digging into him. Um, Do you think he might? Are you trying to picture sort of an early liberationist? I think so. I think so. Yeah. I think there are there are um, senses that there, that is uh, that there's the the framework for an early kind of liberation type reading, um, for sure. Anybody else? I have another question. Yeah. Nobody else does. Um, I was listening to Israel earlier, um, and he was talking to us about um, uh, different uh, African churches in the UK. Um, he talked about. <coughs> data. Um, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a real sad reality, but we lack, we lack data. Um, so again, it's the, the regional teams, certain teams that will have the, the, the greatest um, handle on that kind of stuff. Um, I, I mean, I, you know, the, the, the church that I'm based at, um, you know, the membership is uh, uh, almost entirely white British. Um, so where we are culturally, I think when you, you when you talk in church terms, in terms of our theology, um, it's there's such a mix um, around the issue of women. I don't I don't think it's exclusive to any particular cultural cultural group. Um, so you have churches here that are white British uh, that wouldn't call minister you know woman minister. I mean I'm in Cambridge context where the biggest churches. Anglican, a Grace Baptist Church, instantly, uh, interestingly as well, um, are the ones that don't call women. 
uh, and they are predominantly white British. So I think this issue of women in ministry cuts across uh, the cultural lines. Uh, that's what I would say based on what I have experienced and what I've seen. But I think ultimately we, we need more data in terms of understanding our union. Uh, yeah.